Uh, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. I think, it's, uh, I, I think it's foolish for the church to ignore what's going on out there in the great big world. And uh, so, you know, when Christmas and Easter are being celebrated everywhere, we're going to celebrate Christmas and Easter, even though we don't consider them holy days. And when the whole world is talking about New Year, uh, we're going to uh, talk about the New Year. Uh, resolutions are being made. And I, I think we might as well build into that and, and, and think about um, uh, what needs to be different. Uh, we need to evaluate our lives uh, and go ahead and make use of the opportunity to consider where we are and where we're going. I think we do this individually in our family. We do resolutions on a regular basis uh, and, and have some goals for the next year. I think the organizations that we belong to, it, that can be very profitably done. And I think as a church, evaluate, we evaluate our, our, our message and our our mission and how we are doing in connection with these things. Uh, next Sunday, we'll start my 38th year as the minister of this church. So I have some perspective. I've got some decades to look back over. And I think that the setting in which we are ministering has never been more unstable, more confused, and more uncertain than it is right now. By setting, I mean the culture, the civilization in which we are operating. People have never been more anxious. They've never been more fearful. They've never been more troubled uh, in my lifetime or at least since the, the 1960s. Uh, we're concerned about the future, about our children and the world they're going to grow up in. We're concerned about the, the nation and about the impact of open borders and what's being taught in the public schools and the looming wars out there in, and how they're going to impact us, Ukraine and uh, Palestine, urban crime, failing institutions. Uh, we're concerned about law enforcement, uh, what's being uh, perpetrated in the universities and the media and the government, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, people are troubled and they're anxious and fearful. And yet much of the world looks to the church uh, not as an alternative to what they are encountering in the world. In 1966, uh, Philip, Philip Reif published the book, The Triumph of the Therapeutic. And what he, basically what the, the idea behind the book is that our values, our understanding of right and wrong and important and unimportant is, is a, considered in light of the psychological or emotional impact that that makes on me individually. So for most people, what's, what's good is what is good for me in terms of my lifestyle and my identity. And what is bad is what is bad in affirming or fails to affirm my identity and my lifestyle. So that's, that's a psychological understanding of what's good and bad, and it's a therapeutic understanding. What's good is what makes me feel good. What's bad is what makes me feel bad. And so he can, back in 1966, he considered that the triumph already then of this therapeutic outlook on life. So that the reference point is the individual and their feelings, not a transcendent 
truth, a transcendent standard of right and wrong and of what's good and, and what's evil. Rather, it's all become very subjective and individual and personal and emotional, psychological. And, and that's how your, your average person understands the difference between the good and the bad. And in that context, then, we're ministering. And we have this absolutist religion in which we say there is but one God, and there is but one Savior, and that's Jesus Christ, and there is but one way of salvation, and that's by faith in Him. And we have a very clear moral code summarized by the Ten Commandments, further summarized by the Two Commandments, to love God and, and, and love your neighbor. And so the, this absolute uh, religion in the context of what is good, it makes me feel good, is is a threatening religion. So we hear a lot today about people seeking safe places and there are trigger warnings about anything that might contradict my own system of values and the importance of that which is affirming of me. And so there are, there are people that visit our church, church and, and we regularly have people walk out. I don't know if you've noticed. I notice. <laughs> We've had whole pews get up and walk out. We had people Christmas Eve walk out. Uh, why? Because that would be unhealthy for them to hear things that are contrary to their chosen value system, their lifestyle choices, their uh, understanding of their own identity. That would be bad for them, be harmful to them. And so people not only reject what we have to say, they are offended at what we say. They consider what we say at many points to be immoral. So I, what, about, what I want us to consider from our passage today, not strictly an exposition, but just drawing truths out of Matthew 18, 15 through 20, people seem to know what we demand and they don't like it. Uh, so what I'd like us to consider is what is it that we offer to the world? And I want to develop that thought under four headings. Number one, we offer to the world community. My first 30 years of being the pastor of this church, not one person joined this church because they were attracted by our community. Never mentioned the last seven years more have said it than have not said it. Uh, there, there, is a, there, there's a real change in outlook that's taken place over this period of time. From no one ever mentioned community as a reason why they would join the church. They would say, well, they like the preaching or they like the teaching. They wouldn't talk about community. Now they regularly, I would say this to the majority, are talking about community. And they like the community and so they want to be a, be, belong to the church. Now think about this in terms of the internet. The internet, the promise of the internet was community. You could be part of an online community. You could find like-minded people. And, and, and there's a certain element of that that's, that's true in that you can stay connected with people. I can stay connected with my sisters and my mother. Out in California, we communicate regularly. So that's, that's, been, that's been a bonus. That's been a plus. But do you enjoy community? Um, Online, and the answer to that question very clearly is no, you do not. A virtual community is not a community. It doesn't, it doesn't solve the, 
It doesn't address the, the, the need that we have for interaction with living human beings face to face and to be part of a, of, of a community of living people as opposed to being connected to people that we, never, that we never see, that we don't have any actual physical contact with or in-person relationship with. I think this is, has, has had a lot to do with the fact that people are glued into their phones or their, their, their computer screens, and they're not interacting with people. I remember climbing onto a train in in uh, Virginia, heading south, and there was a group of six pe young people sitting uh, in, in facing um, uh, benches. All six of them were not, were not interacting with each other, but were interacting with their phones. There, there are consequences of that. And among the consequences are you're not relating to people any longer, you're relating to screens. And the people are, are behind the screens, but it's not a human interaction. It's an interaction with words and ideas. And it doesn't solve that, that need that we all have for interaction with people. So what we have here, what we have here in our world today is increasing isolation and a lack of connectivity with actual human beings. The internet has not delivered what it promised. But look at verse 15 with me. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that by every, uh, but, but that, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, let's admit that, that those three verses are the secular person's nightmare, right? That they envision busybodies running around, confronting others, humiliating people about the, the, the sins that they are, they are committing. That's the nightmare version of those verses. The actual uh, the actual reality behind the verses is there is a consensus in a community called a church about what is sin, in other words, what is evil, and what are faults, and there is a consensus. And so there can, witnesses can be brought in, and the whole community can be brought in. In other words, you join a church, a proper church, and there is a broad base consensus about right and wrong so that you will raise your family, you will bring up your children with like-minded people. You'll have a community. There will be standards. There will be goals. I mean, not in every detail, but there will be substantial agreement. That can be very reassuring in a world in which there's no stability, in which everything is in flux and changing. It's reassuring. There's a certain security and a certain stability when you have like-minded people around you who are share your, your convictions about what is true and what is false and what is right and what is wrong. And you build relationships with those people. So we have a meal every Sunday night. We share food together. We pray for each other. We bear each other's burdens. Almost in every case where someone in our congregation gets sick or there's a death in the family, we will get a card from, one, from, 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 from that family thanking us, thanking the ministers, 
thanking more broadly, and really more importantly, thanking the officers and the congregation for the great outpouring of love that they have received from the congregation in their time of need. And, and, and uh, what is it that binds uh, the community here together? What binds us together is not feelings. What binds us together is convictions. It's a community of convictions. There's a consensus. And that provides stability and security uh, for us as individuals and for our children and for our families as, as we seek to bring them up in a world in which, frankly, there is moral chaos. So community, that's what we offer. Uh, number two, purpose. Larger than life, purpose. Larger than self, purpose. Uh, the self is not a large enough project for any human being made in the image of God. The idea that life is all about me, it's all about me being happy, me being satisfied, me fulfilling my dreams, so that the whole project of life, is, it all terminates on me, that's not a large enough project to satisfy us. That, we, we can go to that well just so many times and then it runs dry and we're looking for something more, something bigger than just ourselves. Because life that terminates on self it does not capture the, the imagination. There's not sufficient motivation. You think in, in terms of the motivation behind the communists at the, at the beginning of the 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century, it's extraordinary how devoted they were. Absolutely fanatical commitment to what? Something bigger than themselves. There's something within the human nature. I think about the fanaticism of the fascists in the middle of the 20th century. Likewise, absolutely fanatical commitment. There was this vision, this image of something bigger than the individual. I think the same could be said of the terrorists in the Middle East. There's something bigger. Now it's a false bigger, right? Whether it's Marxism or fascism or Islamism, these are false bigger things. I'm just saying that there is that within the human consciousness that, that longs to be part of something bigger than just me, just myself, just the, the, the individual. So if you go to verse 18 in our passage, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Well, that, that, that's an echo of what he said earlier. So if you go back just a page uh, to chapter 16, verse 19, Jesus said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and then whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In heaven, So this power of binding and loosing is, uh, is in connection with the keys of the kingdom of God. It has to do with opening and closing heaven. In other words, the binding and loosing has to do with saving souls and building the kingdom of God. In other words, you come to Christ, you become a Christian, and you become a part of the church. You are, you are, you are entering into a, a cause 
That is the most important cause, the most important work in all the world. Now, why do I say that? Well, I say it because what we're talking about is, is not man's kingdom, but God's kingdom. And what we're talking about is not some temporary organization or entity, but an eternal one. So you think about how exciting it is to build a house. You know, all of the excitement that goes into the drawing up of the plans and then the eager anticipation as the work begins to unfold as you, you build a house. Or the eager anticipation when you, you build a business and how, you know, you put time on, 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 on you know, perhaps uh, previously unanticipated time that you devote to the build, building of the business or the building of the profession or the building of one's reputation or the organization or a career. Or even if you're just building a shed in the backyard or building a birdhouse, there, there is that satisfaction that comes to, to, from being a part of a purpose that is beyond oneself. You come to Christ, you pick up, become a part of the church, you are part of the greatest work in all the universe. You're the building of the kingdom of God, the house of God, the church of God. Uh, this is the best of all works, the greatest of all works, the most worthy, the most lasting of all possible endeavors. It was this, uh, more than anything else, that, that drove me into the ministry as a college student. Now, it was put to me in ways that I think fundamentally are invalid because what, what the, you know, the recruiters for ministry said to me, do you want to build a corporation or do you want to build the kingdom of God? All right, that kind of a dichotomy, I don't think that's a fair dichotomy. I think you can be serving a corporation and serving God simultaneously. I think, you know, you can be a Christian plumber and you can be a Christian carpenter and a Christian banker and a Christian businessman and a Christian uh, professional and serve Christ in all of those various occupations. Nevertheless, you do need to be serving Christ and the kingdom of God in those occupations. And for me, given my own sense of calling, my own burden for gospel proclamation, when it was put like that, it had a kind of, it kind of had a, 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 a focusing effect, a clarifying effect. I want to be a part of building the kingdom of God. I want to be a part of something that is big and enduring and is beyond me and, and requires sacrifice of me and commitment of me. I want to give myself to that. And that's, that's part of what we offer to the world. We've got something to which you can commit yourself and commit yourself without reservation and, and knowing and making that commitment to Christ and his kingdom and his church, you are committing yourself to that which is the greatest of, of, of all endeavors uh, that we could ever consider in this world. So number two, we're offering you a purpose. Uh, number, number three, we're offering to you the power to change. Verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So what Jesus is talking about there is prayer by which we access the power of God, which is the power to change, the power to make a difference, the power to make an impact. We have access to that. 
as members of the kingdom of God, as those who have been saved by grace, by faith in Christ. Ah, we have access to that power in the building of the church and the building of the kingdom of God so that we can make a difference in this world. Jesus then repeats five times in John's gospel, if you ask of anything in my name, I will do it. So that we have the, the power, access to the power by which change comes about. Now, I think, I think the world right now is, is in the grip of a counterfeit understanding of change. I think the basic idea in the world, I think it goes back to Karl Marx once again to incite, cite, cite his influence, uh, in thinking that change can come about by, turning exter by changing external circumstances. In other words, there's a defective view of human nature, that the problem isn't within, the way Jesus identifies it, say in Mark chapter 7, the problem is within, it's from the heart, all the evils come out. Well, the, the other point of view is all of the problems are external. And that if you just rearrange society, if you, if you were to correct evil and unjust social structures, you would be able to, able to usher in utopia. You would be able to usher in a perfect world if only we could get the externals correct. Uh, so that's what was behind the Russian Revolution. And this is why the greatest evils perpetrated in the history of the human race, arguably, were perpetrated. Uh, because uh, there was meant to be a worker's paradise in the Soviet Union. And all, uh, that would result as, as society was reorganized and equality, pure, uh, total equality between all people was achieved and all of the evils of the world would just vanish and, and you would have a, 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 a paradise for, for the workers. Uh, what happens when people get in the way of that? Well, they're, they're, they're causing pain. They're causing suffering. They are oppressing other people. They need to be removed. They need to be eliminated. This is why tens of millions of people were, were killed in the Soviet Union under Lenin, under Stalin, over the decades. Why? Because they were in the way of utopia, the perfect world, the workers' paradise. They were in the way of it. They were causing pain and suffering. They were perpetuating all that. They needed to be eliminated. Just cross the border into Germany. That's the same thing. What was, what was in the way of, uh, of, uh, of, of uh, Germany fulfilling its, its, uh, its ideals and, and uh, the world being a, 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 a world full of empty of oppression for the German people. Well, the problem was the Jews. They needed to be eliminated. And so the worst crimes in the history of the world are, are, are perpetrated in the name of change uh, because there's confusion about where change needs to occur. Change needs to occur externally. You correct all the external factors. Uh, you, 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 you eliminate the wealthy or, or the prosperous uh, uh, peasants, the kulaks in, in, in Russia, or you el eliminate non-Germans, particularly the Jews or, or Slavic peoples, then you'll have the world as it was meant to be. I think the same thing's happening in Palestine right now. Listen, the way people are able to cheerlead for the barbarism that took place on October the 7th, the way they're able to do that is this whole oppressor-oppressed bifurcation that goes on. There's this the division of the world into the oppressors and the oppressed, and the oppressors need to be eliminated by whatever means it takes. 
so that then there will be a paradise in Palestine. You see the way it works? This is pervasive in our world today. It's the motivation behind all of the DEI, diversity, equality, inclusion, that is reordering the workplace and reordering the universities. I prefer to call it D-I-E, die, because it'll kill a civilization. And the, the, the fundamental problem is a failure to understand the only way in which change can actually take place. How, how does that change take place? It takes place by the power of God. How do I become the, a different person than the one that I am? How do I get victory over my, my idols, my lust, my sins? That's by the power of God released through the gospel. How about uh, globally? How does that take place? It takes place as individuals are changed and families are changed and communities are changed and nations uh, are changed. How is it that our bodies are healed? How is it that our relationships are healed? It's by the power of God. That's how. In the gospel, it's by Christ that these things take place. We offer real change, change that makes a difference, change that makes an impact because in Christ, we become new creations. 2 Corinthians 5.17, the old things pass away, the old sins, the old habits, the old hatreds, they all pass away. All things become new. We are buried with Christ. This is Romans chapter 7, buried with Christ in baptism, raised up in newness of life. We become new, new people. Graham Nash, the rock and roller at the age of 29, in 1971, wrote an ode to the Chicago Seven. You remember the Chicago Seven? They were accused of inciting the riots around the Democratic Convention in 1968. If you don't uh, remember that, you're probably young and you need to read some history, perhaps. But he wrote a song entitled Chicago, We Can Change the World, Rearrange the World, Bring in, bringing thereby justice and freedom in a world without rules and regulations. This is an illusion. We can, you see, what, you, see, you see where the problem is? The world needs to be rearranged. We can change the world. How are we going to do that? By rearranging the world so that we have just social structures. And once we do that and we, and we eliminate all of the, the inequality and, and we make sure all the excluded are included, we'll rush usher in a perfect world. And it started, he said, it started in Chicago. Come and be on, be on, get on board or join the other side. See, this is what the world has to say about change. Eric Watson is a, is a colleague in the ministry pastor of the Harvest Orthodox Presbyterian Church in San Marcos, California. He was a self-described long-haired, stinking deadhead. That's a reference to the Grateful Dead. A drug and sex-abusing, well-practiced sinner who, as a young man, had mastered nearly every form of sin under the sun. As he boarded a bus for a cross-country journey from California to North Carolina, his sister handed him a Bible. And then after a few days, he got sufficiently bored to open it. And as he read, he became deeply convicted of his sin and then equally convinced that the shed blood of Jesus Christ could wash him clean and make him whole and give him purpose in life 
Eric, on that Greyhound bus was converted and called to the ministry. It's one testimony of many that we could give of victory and of transformation, a change, impact, difference that is made by the power of the gospel. And then fourth, what we offer the world is presence. Verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. There am I. Where? Where the church gathers. When we, when we gather here together Sunday by Sunday, it's not just us. Maybe you didn't realize that. No, when we gather, Christ gathers with us. He is present. If you want at least one, I think, decisive motivation for why you ought to be in church Sunday by Sunday, it's because Jesus promises to be there. Fellowship with Christ is what we enjoy together as, as a church. You know, Adam walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day. When the church gathers, we're back to the garden. Enjoying fellowship with the true and the living God through Jesus Christ. Continuing on my theme of the 1970s, Joni Mitchell wrote the song Woodstock in 1970 as a kind of celebration of the Woodstock Festival that took place in Upper State, New York in 1969. Uh, Cosby, Stills, Nash Young then recorded that on their Deja Vu album in 1970, which featured the words, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. Uh, This is when young people grew up knowing something about the Bible. And so even they, as rockers, and they knew about the garden and getting back to the garden. The problem with their garden is there was no God in it. The point of getting back to the garden is getting back to a right relationship with God. It's not about the environment. It's not about in, in just enjoying Mother Nature. The point of the garden is the garden not only was a beautiful place, but it was a beautiful place because God was there. And we enjoyed a right and perfect relationship with God, which is the very thing for which we were made. This is uh, really the point of Pascal's God-shaped void, which I'm sure that many of you will have heard of this at one time or another. Pascal's argument is that there's a God-shaped void in every human heart because we were made for God and God's meant to fill it. But what we spend, most of us spend most of our lives doing is trying to fill that void with other things, things that are not God. And those things that are not God will never fill it. They will never provide the the, the sense of things, the sense of rightness and oughtness and the sense of satisfaction and fulfillment that comes when God fills the void that God alone is able to fill. And and so what what we offer to the world is presence, the presence of God, fellowship with God, a right relationship with God. Don't try to fill that void with the the trinity of evils, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. Right? The lust of the eyes. Beautiful things. That can be very satisfying for a time, for a season. You get beautiful decorations in your home, beautiful furnishings in your home. Buy beautiful clothes. Buy a beautiful car. Those are all the beautiful things. Those are the lust of the eyes. Then there's the lust of the flesh. Pleasures. Eating pleasures and so forth. Bodily pleasures. 
the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. You try to fill the void with achievement, accomplishment, by being recognized by others, becoming famous, known by others, recognized by others, and so forth and so on. They will not fill the void. Only God can fill it. In His presence, and that's what we're talking about, His presence, Psalm 1611, is the fullness of joy. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. The people of God, according to Psalm 36, they partake of the fullness of God's house. They drink from the river of His delights. So there's deep, deep fulfilling fellowship with God, knowledge of God. This is eternal life, Jesus says, to know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We, last Sunday we went and we talked in length about Jesus, the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. He, he, has, he alone has the capacity to, to satisfy the hunger and quench the thirst of the soul, to fill the void that the world with all of its counterfeits, cannot fill. So what do we offer to the world community? You come to Christ, you join His church. You don't come to Christ and not join His church. No, it's His bride. You love Christ, you'll love His bride. You love Christ, you'll love His wife. Don't talk about loving His wife, His bride. and, 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 and Don't talk about not loving Him while loving Him. No, you... If you love the husband, you love the wife. If you love Christ, you love his church. So you get community. You get purpose that's eternal and enduring. You get uh, change, the capacity for, for change and impact and to make a real difference in the world. And you get presence, true, satisfying fellowship with the true and the living God, that very thing for which we are made and apart from which life will never make any sense. But with him, everything then begins to fit into place as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray, O oh God, that this uh, new year would be a year of life-transforming commitment to Christ. Oh, that we would turn from our own way and our own thoughts and to surrender utterly to Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord, whose strong name we pray. Amen.